This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. worries and build your bravery or just relax during a busy day or wind down before bed all day long you breathe in and out in and out without even thinking about it but did you know that you can play with your breath use it to take you on an adventure valeria interviews william meyer he is the author of big breath a guided meditation for kids and Three Breaths and Begin, a guide to meditation in the classroom. William Meyer has taught history, economics, and humanities in urban and suburban high schools. He has also taught meditation to students of all ages, served as the advisor to student-led meditation clubs, and created a humanities elective for students seeking to incorporate meditation into their rigorous academic lives. He has taught workshops and professional development courses on meditation for other educators and has spoken on meditation and education at retreats and education conferences throughout the country. He holds a BA from Dartmouth and an MA in education and teaching from Harvard. He is currently completing a PhD from NYU. Meet William Meyer at BillPMeyer.com. Here is the interview with William Meyer. In your own words, who is William Meyer? That's quite a warm-up question. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm really just curious searcher and someone who finds great joy and fulfillment in sharing some of the nuggets and wisdom that I've discovered along all the searching. And for me, that is sort of played out most uh, within spaces of learning. So I think on the, on the more modern definitions or forms, I'd probably say I'm a teacher and an educator and a writer and speaker. But I think underneath all of that is just a deep yearning to explore big questions, to understand the past, to understand our presence, ourselves, myself, and then to share some of the tools and the insights that I found along the way in in trying to make sense of those pieces. Before we talk about some of the topics in your books Big Breath, A Guided Meditation for Kids, and Three Breath and Begin, A Guide to Meditation in the Classroom. I have these warm-up questions, as I mentioned, as you already know. What is life to you, Bill? Well, I guess this is going to build on my, my first question, but to me, life is just this infinite classroom. It's this space where we get to sort of find the edges of our own being and then push those edges even farther and and go to the other side of them. It can play out in choices and paths and interactions and connections and love and loss. But all of it to me is this idea of growth and in many ways growing into a fuller sense of ourselves than we could ever imagine. And I'm a history teacher by trade in some respects. And I think what really draws me to history, particularly ancient history, is this notion 
that within all of us is something divine or something infinite and connected. And when I look at different monuments or I teach students about sacred geometry or sacred texts, to me, the message seems to repeat over and over. And it's this message of, of go in. And it's all of these things in life outside of ourselves are a reminder to go within ourselves and discover sort of that infiniteness, that connectedness and, and that divine nature within each of us. So in, in many ways, the classroom is a microcosm of a, a much smaller version of this bigger thing we call life and living. When you say divine, what do you mean by that exactly? I think that divine, and, and that can be a loaded term, and I think it also is connected that you, when you use God or specific deities. But to me, divine is that moment when when you're outside of time, when you're outside of, you're engaged in something so fully, whether that's a conversation or a nature or even a meditation, where you find yourself outside of that linear notion of time, of past, present, and future, and you just are. And to me, the divine or divinity within ourselves is that aspect that stands outside of time. It's, it, it's almost the witness to the experiences we're having in our lives. And it's not easy by any stretch of the imagination to drop into that place or to be into it. But it's definitely one that I try to at least access or maybe brush against, you know, a, a few moments a day, whether that's through my breath or just even a, a question a student might ask. But it, it's when I feel really most alive and most connected. I think to me, that is the essence of divine or divinity. When you talk about the divine being this timeless, spaceless experience, so it kind of makes me think about the experience of this life, or what this is, without a belief system. Does it make sense? Would that be? Yeah, yeah that makes a lot of sense. Uh, just recently, I was sharing a photo of one of the Gothic cathedrals to my classes. And as we were looking at this cathedral, we were talking a little bit about those, the doorways, the entrances, which are referred to as portals. And the students were quick to recognize that like a portal is this idea of moving to another dimension. So while they're doors by any stretch of the imagination, they also represent something transcendent. And to me, it, these, this idea of beliefs, and I was raised Catholic, and at a very young age, it was actually my Catholicism and going through the rituals of Catholicism, particularly confirmation, that my uncle, who is a deacon, got wind that I was interested in meditation and took me to meet this Buddhist monk uh, close to where we lived. That set me off on this whole other path. But to me, these belief systems, they serve a great place. They are these doorways but you don't want to stay in the doorway. Right. You want to move, move to the other side. <laughs> and and they're, when they're no longer of service, when they're restricting rather than expanding one's understanding of life and, and the world and themselves, then I think they don't function in really the intended purpose. But to me, they, they offer, it's, it's, it's difficult to just take one big step into the openness and expansiveness of space. There's something that having that structure allows us to move forward into that space and then eventually letting that structure go. And even as a teacher and an educator, I mean, there are tools and techniques that I use for sure. But when I'm at my, my best, when I'm most connected with my students, we've gone way off the grid of what traditional right. teaching or tools. <laughs> but I couldn't get off the grid unless I knew what the grid was. Mm. That has, to me, the similar parallels to beliefs and this idea. They, they do serve a purpose. They help us get that doorway, but then there's something beyond them as well. What do you think is the opposite to life or the opposite of life? I really see that is when we, we stop growing, when we stop learning. 
And I, I keep going back to my students, but it's, I guess, the start of a new school year. So I really find myself in that place. But I, at the end of the year, when I'm with uh, graduating students who are making that transition onto whatever comes next in, in their education, I think of something I often tell them, and it, it reminds me, too, of, of sort of this piece of life. And it's this idea, just keep choosing the path that feels more open. And to me, the opposite of life is when we narrow, when we close, when we're rigid, when we're fixed, uh, when we have certainty. To me, life is something that's organic, it's fluid, it's always becoming and it's always expansive. And of course, I think when, when I'm in a place of fear, I find myself moving out of that and I can sometimes find myself like quickly trying to find the walls or the edges or or something that I can anchor myself to and and I get that and I think we all are in those places at times but that's not life like life is sometimes it's messy can be unhinged but it, it it is this idea of moving towards something more expansive versus narrowing our choices or narrowing our own sense of identity and who we are, Right. which I find this with students is remarkable. And not to give a too long a winded answer, but I look, I, I can work with younger students and I'll ask them like eight year olds, how many of you are artists? They'll all raise their hand. They're all artists. Right. And by the time they're 16, 17, if I ask that question, I'd be lucky to get two or three of them. And I find sometimes within traditional education, we're almost educating them out of their own lives, mm -hmm. almost out of their own beings. Right. It's like, how do they think they're no longer artists? Like, what what has been lost along <laughs> the way? And so these false senses of identity, unfortunately, that we hold to very rigidly, in my opinion, is the opposite of fully living or fully being alive. Yeah, just by listening to you, it brings a smile to my face. Yeah, it feels liberating. Thanks. I, I really feel that as well. And I do think there's something unique in the the amazing thing about schools is really they're ancient in the idea that they revolve around cycles. Like I, there's new students. So I get to rediscover and reconnect with these ideas in ways that just I feel like make them richer and richer and more alive within me. Right. So that, that definitely I feel like plays a big role in that. Why did you choose to become an educator? Well, I actually fought it as hard as I could. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> so it probably was deep, deep in my uh, being or destiny. But for so long, I, I had a real passion for history. And I knew I never wanted to work in an, in an office or, or at a desk. And people would say to me, oh, you're a history major. You're going to be a teacher. And I would answer, absolutely not. No way. And I thought, okay, so what can I do? All right, I'll go to law school. And, and I can recall sitting for the LSAT and having studied quite a bit and getting to one section and being totally stumped. Like that had never happened to me before. Just it did, this did not match the way I saw the world. And walking out of there thinking, this, that's not for me. And finding myself backing into this world and actually first finding myself actually teaching abroad, teaching English. And then as I taught English, I realized, you know, I love teaching, but I don't love teaching English. Okay. <laughs> and, then, and then I began to work with very young kids as just a teaching assistant at a school. I literally took anything that was offered to me. And um, yeah, it's, I had to sort of separate my ego because within particularly, I think, Western cultures and definitely America, uh, teaching in education, unfortunately, is not valued. It's not seen as like fulfilling one's greatest potential. And to me, what that has really forced me to think about is like, how do I re-envision what teaching is? Mm. How do I make that expansive enough to go beyond these these limited notions people have? And how do I let go of my own sense of ego and, and labels to embrace this? And the more I, I study history or text or religious figures, the more I realize like 
these transcendent beings, they were all teachers. They were all educators. And in many ways, they were healers at the same time. And that that teaching is an act of healing. It can be when done with love and compassion and empathy and humility. And I find myself sort of redefining and rediscovering this whole idea that is now I feel so beyond what I had initially thought it to be. But that visceral reaction I initially had, I think it's just sort of my my own nature, like, nah, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) (laughs) But but fortunately, the universe had better plans for me and and helped me find my way to it. And it is it is something I just love. I mean, it is it's never work, honestly. And I've worked with Mm -hmm. a lot of different populations of students but being in the classroom with kids is like to me being at like a a music festival <laughs> thing that really feeds, feeds my soul and my being mm-hmm. and, and i go from it i mean truthfully they are probably the teachers and the masters and i'm i'm just here as mm-hmm. sort of a witness to what they have brought into the world so i feel very lucky you spoke of the ego and that makes me think about another word that you mentioned in one of your books authenticity is that something related when we are aware of the ego, the false self, as some call, and what is to be authentic? How do we know we are there? Absolutely. And the, the beautiful thing about classroom spaces or working with kids, but particularly adolescents, is they have a great nose for when someone's being inauthentic. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I've been, I, as I mentioned, I got into meditation very early in my life, maybe when I was eight, in eighth grade, so maybe 12 or 13, which probably speaks to why I find it so compelling to bring these practices to young people, because I know what it's seated in me. But I also, as, as this field and topic expands, more and more people are are bringing it into their work. And, and that's great, but it also has been commodified in, in some respect. And it can also be very inauthentic. I see, I see teachers espousing these ideas of, okay, I'm going to bring a, a, a bell into my classroom, which if you, if you feel comfortable with that, for sure, bring a, bring a moment of breath and space. But you have to embody that. Like that has to be a practice within your own life that is also true. And to me, authenticity is when we're in alignment, our words, our actions, our beings, they're just like a constellation in Orion's belt. Like they're all spot on, right? And a beautiful alignment. And and students, it, that hits students like a thunderbolt. But when it, they're not in alignment, they can almost, I think, hear it in our voices. And I can hear this in student voices as well. It's like something of what's being said is not true to what's being lived and felt and believed. Mm-hmm. And um, words are just this very small way in which we communicate. Sure. So as we move into these these practices in particular, which to me are, are deeper waters and potentially richer but more complex, the need to be authentic, to embrace, to acknowledge maybe even one's own uncertainty is more important. I mean, yeah, I can kind of fake it like, oh, I love this book. Well, maybe I don't love the book, you know, <laughs> but it's not like super high risk. But if I'm going to ask students, hey, we're going to take do a guided meditation. I'm going to lead you in this meditation. And I myself don't do that. I mean, that's asking them to take a huge risk, a huge chance. And then what does that speak about my own willingness to do that? So to me, you can't you can't offer what you don't possess. And the idea of authenticity is holding what is true for you. And that can be your vulnerabilities uh, to whoever that may be in the world. But in this case, in particularly young people, uh, for them to witness, to see and to learn from. And then, I mean, if they if you're authentic, man, you can you can go anywhere with these. These kids will go to places that it's a lot more challenging to take adults. They're, they're ready. They're seeking that. They want that connection. So that idea of authenticity is just an important thread that gives the work meaning, but also gives the work life as well, as you mentioned or asked about life. I just enjoy and I love talking about these subjects, about life, the depth of life. And I catch myself 
trying to have these conversations with people who have no interest in them. What would you suggest <laughs> or say for some of us who are trying to teach something of value? How do we balance that not to force our knowledge upon others? Yeah, I totally feel that. I actually was out, you know, uh, socially distanced fire pit the other night. There was, it was us and another couple, and and we were. Had, it was the first time we'd been to their house, and it was beautiful wooded backyard. And I looked around, and all night I couldn't help but get the feeling like these trees are these like elders. So towards the end of the night, I said, "Oh my God, look at these five trees! They are like watching over. They're holding this space for you." And I mean, it just landed so flat. Like, I don't think those, they weren't interested (laughs) in hearing that the trees were alive or that there is like so energetic entities in them. Um, And it's like, okay, move on. And, And what's interesting is I think what's important is that idea of invitation. When I first began this work with students, it was through the students' invitation. It actually started with a student who was doing a science experiment on meditation, the benefits of meditation. And he asked me to join the experiment. And it was like an eight-week group that he was studying, and we'd sit for meditation at lunch. And at the end of it, he said, you know, I was thinking maybe we could form a meditation group. So I said, sure. And in the beginning, those were just silent meditations. But then it was uh, about after maybe four or five months, he he turned and some others said, would you guide us in a meditation? And that When I led that first guided meditation, that was a huge leap for me as well. I mean, closing your eyes, guiding a meditation with with a group of 16-year-olds. Closing your eyes with 16-year-olds is a big leap. Um, And then quickly, they got word or word got around into one of my classes. And one of my classes said, can you lead us in a meditation? And then one of the captains of one of the sports teams came up to me and said, would you lead the team in a meditation before this playoff game? And it just kind of snowballed. And the number of times it's it's I I just allow that piece to move forward. And and I find it very receptive. And sometimes I, I guess intuitively I look for the invitation that might not necessarily come directly in words. There's an opening there. And that's so important. If the opening doesn't exist, it doesn't matter how transcendent the practice is or timeless. (laughs) The person has no time for it, (laughs) which is the ironic thing. Um, True. uh, And I find with adults more, that goes back to those earlier questions Mm. you were asking. The mind is more rigid. The perceptions are far more narrow. And and there's a, a real fear where kids have a yearning to discover, like that's that's part of that young DNA. Like they're curious, they're open, and they see the life that they've been sort of sold, they recognize quickly isn't really all it's meant to, you know, it's supposed to be. Um, and there's a real emptiness and the desire for connection. And if you can offer that to them through an authentic conversation, through a compassionate listening or through a guided meditation, that is what I find what they are. So, so many of them are hungering for, uh, which is, is what makes, makes it possible. So in a way, Bill, it's easier to teach wisdom, as I call it, to young people, to children mm-hmm. and the young, than it would be to teach adults. Would you say that? That's much easier? Yes. And it goes back to the idea that you had mentioned earlier that I, I it really resonated with me, which is this idea of embodying. To me, wisdom, you can't, you, this, this wisdom, it's like, it's felt. It's not just right. heard. Yeah. And I think when you can create, uh, and I talk a little bit about this in, in Three Breaths. I mean, I think it's the first chapter. It's all about space. It's regardless of meditation. If you can create a space, like a safe, compassionate space for students, they can begin to open. And really, it's an opening of the heart. And wisdom resides in the heart. Wisdom to me is something that's timeless. And it goes straight to the heart, not to the head. But if that space doesn't exist, it's very difficult to do that. And I find with with kids like, yeah, they're ready. They're ready to be in their hearts. They want to know these things. They they want to tap into those 
deeper truths and deeper nuggets because so much of their lives are being mediated and synthetic and plastic and surface. And uh, I, I don't know what the, the difference is in adults. Maybe we've just gotten accustomed to, to something and we're like, okay with it. It's good enough for us. But for young people, I find that they're not as accepting of sort of the broader culture of consumption or surface interaction that sometimes adults are. Although I do believe in inner peace, you mentioned earlier too, just find the answers within ourselves, which we know that to be true. Yes. And it's not out there, it's here. So we can be at peace no matter what. <laughs> but if we have the choice, that's a wonderful environment to be in, one of growth. Oh, yeah. And actually, I, I should, when you say that, it reminds me of this video I'd shown my classes and it was actually a New York Times short short video on a, called the Bull Rider and in the clip the this older man this cowboy is who's sitting there with his eyes closed and he says something along the lines of like when I close my eyes I can drop into the wisdom of 10,000 lives. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know how many students like hear that, but every time I hear that, <laughs> it's a real showstopper. Like I, I want to stop the class and say to them, you, all the answers you'll ever need, you have. Mm -hmm. they're, they're there, they're within you. Yeah. And if you can find that, that inner stillness, if you can quiet that inner monologue, and drop into that place, you'll be amazed at what you discover. You, you, you can be so empowered and the choices you make will be so much more in alignment with your own sense of purpose. And in the end, as a result of such greater service to this world mm. that, than if you just live in your head. What is meditation? How is it different from mindfulness? And what is the purpose of meditation? Do we set an intention? Yeah. How does it work? Yeah. That word intention is spot on. I, I often think about this question because these two words are flip-flopped all, all the time and, and um, inter interchanged. But this idea of meditation to me is intentional thinking or directing our thinking with intention and attention on a single point, whether it's the breath or a candle or an image, where mindfulness is the state of being in that, like bringing that into the fullness of our whole life. So being present in eating or conversations, but at the same time, it's, it's just being with that attention. And I don't know if that's the most articulate response or the clearest, but meditation is sort of a tool to becoming more mindful and more present in your whole life. And as a practicing meditator, I can't tell you the number of times I'll end a meditation and three minutes later, I'm just like back at it. <laughs> and I can at least recognize my in my own head, like, whoa, like I, I can't hold this state or bring this any farther than, you know, the, the stairway up to my my son's room, my four year old son. It's, he's trying to go to bed like I can't bring that intentionality and that sense of peace and, and being this tool into that and connect to, connect to my breath. But it, it is, it's difficult. It's always about returning, returning, returning. Mm. And for a lot of people, I think the people are challenged by it because there almost is this desire for immediate feedback. And unfortunately, we we sell this stuff on the idea, oh, you'll have better grades. Students will be able to focus more and all this stuff. And that might be true. And you can look for those things. But for me, with young people in particular and myself, it's not about those outer behaviors that might get greater clarity. And they often do. But it's just this deeper discovery of who we are. And that, that just is reframing of life in general. And I think that those two pieces, meditation and mindfulness, meditation is the tool and mindfulness is just that way of being in life. Um, so they each have a place, but, but sort of a different part of a whole. I love the way you talk in your book about the heart. You actually ask the question, what is the heart? And then you say meditation is a pathway to the heart. 
So my question is, what is the heart in a sense? And what is the connection between mind and heart? How can we connect them and live in such a way connected? I think that's the word. Yes, yes. Like grounded, embodied. It comes back to that piece as well. I actually was um, just at my cardiologist this morning and I'm if and you saw me for a glimpse in person, I'm, I'm yeah. 40 years old, I'm fairly healthy, but actually two years ago, I had to have open heart surgery. It was, I was actually quite fortunate that they discovered this aneurysm and, and I was born with a bicuspid valve. I like to think like too much uh, emotion was coming out of my heart. So it had to be recalibrated. Yeah. <laughs> but But this idea, I mean, my whole mantra was all about, you know, heart opening, open your heart. The the day of my wedding, I remember going to a yoga class and really being in camel's pose to open my heart as much as possible. But and then having this surgery, like, wow, what an incredible reminder, (laughs) opening the heart. But it's like the heart is this space of gentleness It's a space where these sometimes conflicting aspects of the self can can live and coexist together. It's really a space of unity. And the mind in my in in my estimate is can be a place of duality, always looking for right and wrong, good and bad. And that helps us navigate the sort of this world that we're in, the stage that we're on. And the body is this vehicle that's moving us through it. But that the coming and finding that balance between that heart space and that head space is, is so important. And I think trying to engage others, whatever level that is, in my case, often it's teaching, but many times it's with my kids as a, a father or my wife, as a husband, is, is a heart space. And unfortunately, like, I, and I do this a lot, I teach a little too often, sometimes from my head, I live a little too often from my head. And, and I know there's that great book, 10% Happier. I love that book. But it's almost like if we could live from our hearts 10% more mm-hmm. as well, and listen a little bit more from the heart, just feel that space and just be able to integrate I think there'd just be a greater sense of ease and effortlessness to some of the interactions we have. Uh, We don't necessarily need to judge them all or evaluate them all or sort them and categorize them, but instead just be with them. How did you become a writer, Bill? And did you set an intention when you wrote um, your two books, Big Breath and The Three Breath and Begin? Yeah, so... My journey to writing, I, I, I used to write lists when I was younger, maybe like maybe even 17, 18 of just things I wanted to do in my life. And one of them was write a book and another one was write a children's book. <laughs> and around the age of 30, I was just struck. Actually, the first book I wrote, the first two were these middle grade adventure stories um, where a little boy by the name of Horace traveled back to Egypt and that first book took me five years to write and to get published. And I literally had no experience writing creatively or in fiction. I never took a, a literature class in college or a writing class. Like I was history uh, from here to there. But I just felt I had this. I was this was in me like it was it was what it was. I was going to write this book. And it taught me a lot. It was very difficult in many ways, the number of revisions. But that opened this other book. And then honestly, those first two books, when I I had the idea of three breaths and I shared it with my agent, that was picked up effortlessly. And then from that book, we the publisher said, you know, it'd be cool if you maybe wrote a guided meditation in the form of a kid's book. And I did that. And then that took off and that became Big Breath. And we actually just have another book coming out next year called Healing Breath, which is a guided meditation on the planet for kids. It was interesting. Like, I don't it wasn't this straight path by any means, but writing and voice and words had always been just a deep part of my own sense of self and discovery. 
and clearly like had some pushback against any formal training in that, which I probably would have benefited from. <laughs> but I felt very strongly like that was the will, the William and the will was <laughs> this book. I'm going to bring these books to life. Uh, and I was really fortunate to do that. Actually, the first book came out right about the same time that my son was being born. And both were a great struggle to bring into the world. But for a lot of reasons, it was well-timed. And just that whole sense of birthing and bringing, bringing something forth was very powerful. What is happiness to you? And how is happiness different from joy? Yeah, those those are great questions. And I, I mean, joy to me, I just picture like a really wide open horizon with the, the, the sun setting and a feeling of just the sun almost sinking in to my pores and my being. And I, I feel that at the end of an experience and happiness is this wave. And sometimes I'm on the top of it and sometimes I'm not. <laughs> it's sort of like the, the, the waves on the edge of that, that horizon uh, going up and down. I, I find Particularly as a parent, I have a four-year-old, as I mentioned, also a one-year-old daughter. And they're just incredible teachers to me and, and, and mirrors of myself. And, and I've learned so much from them. But the ways in which they approach life, and, and many times they are so happy and joyful, but they also can get you know, just devastated in a minute. But there is a fluidness to it. And I think at the end of the day, they do find joy. There is a piece that they seem to bring to the end of each day that I want to bring more into my, at the end of my days, like sometimes probably all of us feel this, like we carry the emails and the to-do lists and the next days into, into the end. And there's something about the beauty in which they let go of the day and just like uh, prepare for the next one, just totally open in, in sort of a bliss. And that to me is, is that separation, that moving from the waves to just that being of openness and endlessness. Some people see meditation as being a religious practice. What is your take on that? Yeah, it, its origins are. I, I don't think that's something you can deny. And quite frankly, I think it's one of the problems with the way it's at time brought into schools or spaces. And I recognize that as much as anyone teaching and working in a public school. And that's why I think that invitation is so important because it has roots within these contemplative traditions in both the East and the West. And to fully acknowledge or garner the benefits of this, you have to acknowledge the roots of these of this tradition, this very powerful tradition. And if you strip it down, of course, you can meditate with people and, and hope they perform better on a test. But if you can connect to some of those roots, it's really this very powerful reflective practice. So if meditation is too loaded within the community you work or live or the space that you want to bring it into, I would say just look for other ways to reflect like it's really about reflection and just intentional reflection maybe that's like a quiet walk uh, outside maybe it's journaling maybe it's uh, creative writing whatever it is it's just about that intentional reflection let me see some other points that in your book that caught my attention there are so many kinds of meditation and you mention a few of them or lots of them so I'm wondering how do we choose one kind of meditation over another? The most important thing is what works best for you. I think they say this uh, probably about working out, like the best exercise is the one you'll do. <laughs> and it's true of meditation. There's guided meditations, there's silent, there's mantras, there's walking. I mean, there's so many it's interesting. The two I probably spend the most time in is when I'm in groups, I often lead guided meditations. But as I mentioned before the interview, I'm an introvert as well. And I, when I meditate myself, I do it silently. I don't like guided meditations. In fact, if I sit in guided meditations, I just use it as someone holding the space and I'm, I'm off. 
<laughs> that piece, right. and even my own personal practice, I mean, I, I can extend uh, my meditations. And actually, going back to Dan Harris, I remember him mentioning like the length of his meditations. I thought, whoa, maybe I should up the ante. When I try to like keep pace or have a 40 minute meditation or an hour long meditation, I, I just, that's not sustainable. So for me, I actually just try to meditate eight to 10 minutes every day. That's it. And yes, like when I get the chance or I go on a retreat, I get longer and I get to enjoy other aspects of it. But finding that sweet spot that you can return to day in and day out, that is really the best meditation you can do. When you talk about sweet spot, I think about imagination and intuition. Are they somehow connected, those two? Because I hear a lot about the present moment, being in the moment. So I'm wondering how can we stay here with what is and, and at the same time imagine, use our imagination? Yeah, there's a powerful feedback loop when you are in the present moment. And I think that's intuition. And in the classroom, it's amazing because I can you can just pick up on things that I don't know where they come from or how they come. But it's like that wisdom of 10,000 lives is suddenly available. It's all these veils have been lifted or these, these doorways opened. And I think you're right. Imagination and creativity, it's all... We haven't talked a lot about the present moment, but both of those are all about this timeless space. It's like when we're fully, when we're fully ourselves, we're creative beings, we're imaginative, and it's like we exist outside of time. We are present in this moment, this now is this only moment we experience everything in life. Mm -hmm. And there's those to me that creativity and imagination and intuition are just those incredible feedback loops. When you know you're there, when you're when you know you've dropped into it, you start to see that and feel that and be that, which just encourages you and encourages me for even more. It's like an insatiable desire to, to continue that uh, and to, to live from that place. Right. And it feels different than thoughts, doesn't it, Bill? That's so true. And I, I think that for me is what I enjoy so much about writing. I also love to draw and I just love to sort of let my mind be open and lucid. I almost do these like map. Uh, map mind maps yeah. uh, where I just try to draw and write things that I have in my mind out and that imaginative space is like any muscle. It grows and it, it, it just feeds and is expansive. That's another word, yeah. You have been using expansive. Yeah, I guess I have a lot, <laughs> which is good because it's felt it's been very strange in the classroom these last couple of weeks. <laughs> This very closed and sterile way. So I'm glad I, I'm either holding on to that or hoping for that one or the other. I keep calling upon it. I have a few more questions for you. But before that, would you like to add anything or read a passage in one or both of your books? Sure, I would. I would love to. Let me see if I can uh, find something. You know, I actually. I'm going to pull up Big Breath here because I, I feel like the children's book in many ways, it, it does have that lightness. Yeah, I'm yes. finishing a, a doctorate, a PhD at NYU, and I honestly think there's probably more wisdom in these 1,200 words than there are <laughs> in the, the 180 pages of my <laughs> dissertation. <laughs> and way, these are way more accessible. One of my favorite parts is actually towards the end. I'm going to see if I can find this. And in this book, so just to set it up, this the big breath is, as I said, this beautifully illustrated children's book. And Brittany Jacobs did the illustrations and talk about someone just bringing to life uh, words and thoughts. And we had a chance to meet last fall, which was yeah. pretty cool because you do have this creative endeavor with someone who you've never physically been in the same space with is wild. They just sort of like bring to life your, your words. So this is a book you, I always like to read with my son or kids either at the end of the day, just as a reflective piece. So at the end of the book, it says, now take another big breath and let them all go like footprints washed away by the waves. Let go of the day, let go of the coulds, the woulds and the shoulds, the goods and the bads. And for just a moment, breathe. And that's probably one of my favorite lines. And I think it's just something I, 
I love because I think it just reminds me of what I need to do as well. But it's very simple. But I think it's it's probably the most important line in all I've in everything I've written <laughs> so far. Hopefully, is there another passage that you'd like to read? I think that's good. I really feel like I'm in the vibe. Like, yeah, I, I feel that. Yeah, yeah I did enjoy. If, if if people do get three breaths, there's a lot of great excerpts from students and testimonials, which are pretty amazing. That just speak to the student experience, whether it was a meditation on a trip in、um, England or whether it was meditating in a class. And I think the voices of the students、uh, were really cool to have a part of that book, and that's definitely something worth looking at as well. Yes, yeah, I'll have the links, and、um, absolutely, Fit for Joy is the platform for this、uh, kind of works, which I call them healing works. And in your work, it's artistic, which is another thing that I absolutely love.、Um, healing arts, they call them. I have to ask you this one: What is the meaning of freedom to you, Bill? What is to be free? That's a big word, particularly today. And I think it's a, as a historian, and I'll put on my historian's cap here a little bit. I think it's something that, from the creation of this country, is like this great challenge of trying to reconcile the realities of what exists within. This country and this space with these ideals, freedom. There's so many different levels and and ways of understanding that. But I think in the historical sense, it's moving beyond these systems of oppression, both the physical systems and the political systems, but also the the mental systems and the rigidity、uh, that we sometimes carry within our mind, and entering or moving to a place. Where we can see beyond those and actually honor and respect one another for the gifts and the human beings that we are, and on a personal level, it's also just the capacity. And I guess it's it's definitely been a privilege for me to just have opportunity and to be able to pursue that opportunity, whether that's through time or energy or the resources needed to, and that that is. Been very unique in my own experience, but I know it's not true for all. And so I think one of my, even my desire, I think in 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 the end, in terms of education, is this idea of of being of service. Like I've had the chance to discover my own passions and purpose, and to help those and, and be of service to students and young people in discovering that. Because when they do, and they're able to pursue that. That is a real sense of openness and freedom. What is your understanding and idea of love? Love, <laughs> love is—it's when that notion of separation dissolves. It's just that that authentic connection. It's it's that that oneness where where we feel really deeply connected. And love is something that that grows. I I mean I've been very fortunate and blessed, and I think about that right now. When I know it's a challenging time, and particularly challenging if you're you're single or you don't or or the people you love aren't close to you, because I've we've been quarantined and it's been challenging. But like for my wife, my son, and my daughter, I mean. They're little beings. They're they're not going very far. Like I get to live the, a pretty a similar life. We just live it all together in the same house and same space. But for me, just having them enter the world and come into my life, I felt like my heart grew, and that's something I didn't believe was even possible, or that my capacity to love could grow more. And in, in kind of a silly way, like now I'll watch or show videos in class, and I find myself getting really emotional. And these are things I've seen like eight times. Like it's just my son has started a, a preschool, which is at a nature center, and there was a snake eating a frog on the edge of the pond. I couldn't emotionally handle it. It was like too overwhelming <laughs> to my my own heart. And I I find like love is that that sense of growth. It's that sense、mm. of connection. It's that empathy. It's that way of being with all things. How do you define success these days? What is to be successful? 
I just, to me, success is just to continue to pursue these projects and passions. I mean, that is so rich. It's just to continue to grow. It's, I get the, to me, successful is to, whether it's the books I write, whether it's the research I get to do, whether it's what I bring into my classroom or just programs I can bring into the district or other schools. Uh, success to me is, um, you know, just going on a long hike with my son too and just having like an amazing time. It's it's having my daughter on my back, like in a career. That is to me success, just a real richness and a, and a general well-being. And of course, I I do drop into sometimes like, oh, you know, I need this heading next to my name or I need these these letters or this or that, because then that will be the measure of success. I need another book published. I need this many sold. But in truth, I find like those are those types of successes. I I always need more of them. They never <laughs> they never seem to do the trick. While the other ones that I seem to have dropped into more, particularly in the last six months, because just all of the other distraction is not there, seem to be far more fulfilling in my life. And that, that, the family, the connection, the self, the sense of well-being. If you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything differently? I often think about that at times. Maybe that's having uh, open heart surgery. I don't think I would change much. I, I always say to my wife, I would go up to Vermont, invite people I love to come visit me, and I would just write as much as I could and can uh, up until the end. But I would really probably make an even greater effort to connect with people present and past who have been important in my life. And I think, if anything, that piece... I sometimes neglect, but more than anything, I would just want to be with my family. And my last question, what are three things about life you know for sure as of now? Don't trust anyone who doesn't dance. <laughs> uh, I, I know that's for certain um, also that don't trust anyone who's certain oh. <laughs> students hold against me all the time it's a great deal of suspicion and certainty and you know it's it's not about I guess the third one it's, it's not about like the wins or losses it's all about the experience and what can be garnered from the experience like that is the richness of life and that's what we we get out of things more than um, the accolades or the praises or the likes or the dislikes uh, on our, our social media it's it's what we've what we've learned what we've learned where we've grown thank you so much for your sharing your wisdom your beautiful wisdom and also your presence thank you for your mission thank you for this conversation bill Oh, thank you. This was wonderful. Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? Sure. Uh, my website is www.billpmeyer.com. And it's, it's all there. Videos, guided meditations, uh, events, uh, talks I've given that have been recorded. That's a, that's a great place to go. And at Bill P. Meyer is also on, I'm on Instagram and, and all of that social media jazz, although I'm a pretty I'm pretty monastic when it comes to my social media. <laughs> Despite my agent often trying to be like, you need to post more. It just is not in my, my DNA. So the website's probably the best place to go if, if you're interested in learning more. Thank you so much again. And we'll talk soon. Excellent. Thank you. Bye for now. Thank you for listening. To learn more about William Meyer and his work, please visit BillPMeyer.com.